Hello, and welcome back to the Grace Downtown podcast. This week, we're bringing you part three of Dr. Howard Griffith's three-part class on the Trinity in Scripture. This was one of the three classes the Grace DC Network offered as part of the 2015 winter term, a series of classes we offer on various topics every January. The next Grace DC network-wide event is the upcoming Mercy Conference on March 28th. If you're interested in better learning how to love your neighbor and serve your city, then visit gracedc.net slash downtown to learn more about the Mercy Conference. And now, here is Dr. Howard Griffith. Let me pray. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, thank you that um, you've given us these weeks together and um, to consider you, to uh, know you, to grow in our knowledge of you. And we pray, Lord, your, your blessing on all that we do. We pray that you'd be our teacher. We pray that you move our hearts to know you, to receive your word, Lord, to abide in you. Help us to grow in Christ, we pray. And uh, thank you for our time together. We're, we're so grateful for one another. So bless us, we pray, Lord, as mind meets mind, as we think and as we talk and as we read your word, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Um, <clears throat> our subject, uh, as you know, is adoring uh, the Trinity, the triune God, delighting in God, in worship and prayer, and... Um, <laughs> On your outline, uh, I've tried to include some of the most important things, or things that I think are important. Um, so let's just work our way through it. We're a little bit smaller group, so let's please, please feel free to raise a question if you have one. I'm happy to do that, and um, we should actually be able to do that pretty well, I think, tonight. Um, the, the first thing... That came to mind comes to my mind as as we think about worship and the adoration of God, praising God is his mystery is the mystery of God, and I think that the the Trinity or considering that God as triune brings that home to our minds it brings it home to our hearts that we 're not dealing with are one of our pals, you know? We're not dealing with a person who's anything like anyone else we know in this certain sense. We know God is one being and three persons. And considering that and considering him as that, I think changes our whole attitude toward God. Because however we explain it, we are soon over our heads and, and it's good for us to see this. I think it's humbling for us. I think it brings us to a place of bowing before God. And I really don't think there's anything more important than um, knowing his greatness and bowing down before him in his greatness. And he's greater than any of us will ever be able to say um, because he's personal, and we can say three personal, and he's the covenant Lord. So I want to read this prayer. Uh, it was written by Augustine in his great book on the Trinity, right at the end of the book. And uh, I want you to, to observe, there's a lot of theology in this prayer, but there's more than words here. There's 
wonderful devotion here. Listen to Augustine. He says, O Lord God, our God, we believe in you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Truth would not have said, go and baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit unless you were Trinity. Nor would you have commanded us to be baptized, Lord God, in the name of any who is not Lord God. Nor would it have been said with divine authority, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, unless while being Trinity you were still one Lord God. And if you, God and Father, were yourself also the Son, your Word, Jesus Christ, were yourself also the gift, the Holy Spirit, we would not read in the documents of truth, God sent his Son. Nor would you, only begotten one, have said of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, and whom I will send you from the Father. Directing my attention to this rule of faith, the best I could, as you enabled me to, I have sought you, and desired to see intellectually what I have believed. Do you yourself give me the strength to seek, having caused yourself to be found, and having given me the hope of finding you more and more? Let me remember you, let me understand you, let me love you. Increase these things in me until you refashion me entirely. You can see this is, this is the greatest. Augustine, you know, very famous for his confessions, he wrote this, this big book, great big book. He wrote it about the year four, uh, I think about 420, if I'm right, something like that. He's, he's the greatest and most influential thinker in the history of the church, without a doubt. Massive mind, massive heart, deep and profound devotion, um, and really worked at this subject of what does it mean for God to be triune. And yet, you see, for him, it isn't a matter of working out the propositions it's more than words, it's more than theology. It's not less, but it's more because there's real devotion there. And what he says so gloriously, beautifully, I think, is I did the best I could. Help me, Lord, to know you. And I, I think that, that helps us uh, to recognize something really important about this doctrine because um, God is great, and God is greater than, than we are. So, we need to begin with thanks. We need to begin when we pray with thanksgiving. We begin our prayers with a recognition of his greatness and of our smallness. And that's why thanksgiving is so important in Christian prayer. Um, I want to read a passage from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. Everybody, I think, will be fairly familiar with this passage. It's the profile, Paul's profile, of a person who's full of the Holy Spirit. So he gives this command in 18. He says, uh, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. N that, that's the main verb, be filled. It's a present uh, imperative, and it means go on being filled. Continue to submit your life to the Lord, the Holy Spirit. And then... He follows in the following verses with um, 
what we call participles. So they're, they're verbs that depend on the main verb. So in verses 19, 20, and 21, we see that kind of a profile of what this looks like. What does it mean for a person to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, he says this, Be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence uh, for Christ. So singing to Christ, giving thanks in the name of Christ to the Father, as he puts it, always and for everything, and putting others' concerns and interests before our own. That's the effect of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now that's a, a thoroughly Trinitarian statement, as you see. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the mystery of the Trinity, the glory of the Trinity, is why we say when we're asked who is Jesus, we have to be able to say more than he is the eternal Son of God. Now that's good theology, but it leaves out the most important thing. And the most important thing is trust in the Trinity. That we should trust our God, that we should believe in our God, that we should know our God. Because even the best theology doesn't unite us to Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who brings us into fellowship with Jesus Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who works faith in our hearts. And it's faith in the triune God that gives us life and salvation. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's how Paul put it in Galatians 2.20. Who is Jesus Christ? He's the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And when we're united to Christ, we're one then with the Father and the Spirit too. Um, Okay, so then let me ask you to think about this with me. That God's love, his eternal love, which is to say his love within himself, Father and Son and Spirit, is outgoing. It's outgoing. And I think this is the biggest benefit of this particular preparation for me to teach this and think about this, was to see this, to learn this. And I don't think I've really seen this before, to be quite frankly, quite frank about it. But God loves deeply. He loves personally. And this is an eternal reality for him. Uh, the, the Father's eternal delight is to give himself to the Son or to beget the Son. That's a metaphorical way that Scripture describes the eternal relationship between the two divine persons, Father and Son. Remember that the word beget doesn't imply a beginning because we're talking about God and his eternal existence. Um, could, could I ask someone please to read uh, a text of scripture? Read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. There's a lot of clauses in there, so read it out nice and loud. Can somebody do that for me? Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay, thank you. That's, that's a statement that's just rich with assertion. God's, the history of God's making himself known. He's spoken many times, many various ways to the fathers, through the prophets. That's the whole history of divine revelation in the Old Testament. And that's contrasted with what he's now done in these last days, the days of fulfillment. In these last days, he's spoken in a son. And then he goes on to describe the son and list these predicates of the son. And of course, we know that the son is the one who offered himself. He made purification for sins. And then after he ascended, he sat down at the right hand of God. But notice the other things that he says, uh, especially in verse 3. Notice verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the outshining of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. Now that's a statement about the character of the Son in his eternal relationship with the Father. So the Father communicates himself eternally now to the Son in such a way that the Son perfectly reflects who the Father is. That's who He is. That's the love of the Father for the Son. And the Son likewise loves the Father. Remember John 1.1 when we looked at that passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Um, so there's this, there's this mutual giving, beautiful mutual giving the Father loves the Son. The Son loves His Father. And the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. And the Father and the Son love the Holy Spirit. Now, why am I going back over this? Well, the reason I'm going back over this is because we know this love as His children. This is the love that you and I know as believers. The, the childship that we enjoy as children of God is found in this eternal outgoing, this eternal self-giving. And I want to illustrate that by looking at a couple of texts in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Um, first of all, in Colossians 1, 12 to 14. And then um, I want you to see, if, uh, I want you to be able to see the, the way that the same language is used for us that's used for the Son of God. Um, later, in the, later in the book of Colossians, we'll see this. So Colossians 1, 12-14. Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you, you Christians in Coloss, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, that little phrase... His beloved Son literally says, the Son of His love. And that little phrase in verse 13 is alluding, it's making an allusion to something that we read about in the Gospels. It's the words that the Father spoke from heaven at Jesus' baptism. So Jesus is coming up out of the water, um, and the Father speaks 
You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Um, Those words in turn, that's Luke 3.22, those words in turn um, reflect two passages from the Old Testament. Psalm 2 verse 7 and Isaiah 42 verse 1. We'll look at those right now. But Jesus is setting out on the task of Redemption on the task of redeeming us from sin and guilt. This is the beginning of his public, the, the beginning of his public ministry, and the Father speaks from heaven and expresses his delight in him, and it's the Father's love for his Son. And see, this is what Paul is alluding to as he writes to the Colossians. He is the Son of his love, or the beloved Son. The Father sent him to redeem us. With his blood. The Father loved him from eternity, and now the Father's love for his Son is lavished on us. That love is lavished upon us. He's adopted us in our union with Jesus Christ, the Son. So the very same words that the Father spoke to Jesus from heaven that Paul alludes to. He now speaks to us. He calls us chosen, beloved, and forgiven. Colossians 3, 12 and 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. See, it's an echo. It's an echo of the language of uh, the Father to the Son. Put on uh, as holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now, of course, uh, in, the, in the chapter 1 passage, we have Paul referring to the redemption that we have through Christ's blood, the end of verse 13. Uh, here in chapter 3 he talks about the forgiveness that we have because of the redemption through Christ's blood. But, but, but you see, the relationship is the same. It's the love the Father has for His Son that now belongs to me, that now belongs to you. It's the Father's love towards you and towards me as believers Jesus spoke about this when he prays in John chapter 17. We looked at a little bit at it in um, last week. John 17, 23 and following. John 17, 23 to 26. I in them and you in me, speaking about the disciples, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me Maybe in them and I in them. Could there be anything more amazing than this? More wondrous than this? 
this self-giving God, this Father who begets His Son, this Father who gives Himself to His Son in eternity, then sends His Son to redeem us in order that we might share that love. This is why we worship the Father. This is why we trust the Father. This is why we pray to the Father. And this is the truth about every Christian. It's not some super-Christian. It's not somebody special, except special in this wonderful way. Just as the Father loves His Son, so He loves you. That God, He loves us who have so sinned against Him, and that He loves us this way is more than amazing. It's inexpressibly glorious that God has done this, and Scripture teaches this. Now notice, too, it's not a flash and then it's gone. He continues to love. And even if we stray, he will come to get us. You think of uh, Jesus going into the far country, uh, like the, the, the younger bro- or the, the, what the older brother should have done, you know, in that parable. Go into the far country. Well, Jesus goes into the far country. But listen to Jesus' statement about the permanency, the continuousness, the unbreakableness of his love and the Father's love for believers. John 10, 27 to uh, 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. See, there it is. There it is. He knows each of us by name. He knows our past. He knows our needs. He knows our present situation. And we will enjoy this love for eternity. And of course, this provokes wonder and enables us to praise, enables us to love, enables us to give thanks. Okay. Well, what I want to say is, and I, I want to just give thanks to God, because in the church, right here, in this community, and in the church around the world, God the Father is answering the prayer of His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. As the Father has loved us, the Spirit is causing us, enables us to love each other and to express the Father's love to each other. And this is real. This is real. Um, The acceptance. um, This is... I hope I hope this is a legitimate. Uh, I hope this is a serious enough example of this. But I, I have a friend who uh, I know in the ministry. I, I haven't. I've known him for quite a while, maybe fifteen years, I guess. And we sort of have different views of how things should go in the church in some ways. But we we get together. And we care about each other. Well, I was at a, a meeting, and I really got treated badly by somebody who's. A superior to me uh, at at a meeting that I was at, and as I was going back to my room, it was just ha- it was just misery. I was in misery because I was so upset. I was going back to my room. I encountered this this uh, this friend, and uh, he kind of looked at me and had this penetrating look, and he said, 
you know, what's bugging you? You know, something like that. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't mean, but it wasn't the you know, friendliest thing in the world. He was sort of looking at me. And I turned around to him, and I just bit his head off. I said to you something, you know, I don't know what I said. Like, Wouldn't you like to know? Or something really nasty, you know? And he just sort of, literally, he stepped back and said, hmm, you got something going on, you know? Well, I was totally at fault. Absolutely at fault. I'm older than this guy. I want to have a good relationship with the guy. So my conscience was bothering me so much, troubling me all that day. Finally, I see him later in the day at a meeting, after the meeting breaks. And I go up to him and I said, listen, I'm really sorry. I was totally inappropriate in what I said to you. And I just want to ask you to forgive me. And then I was going to explain why I was so upset and why I blew it and all this stuff. But honestly, there was no excuse for anything that I, for what I said. He just looked at me and said, were you having a bad day? I said, yeah. He said, okay, forget it. And that was it. Now, it's as simple as it can be, I guess. I don't know if I can communicate to you the emotional force of that. But the emotional force of it for me was really profound. Because there's, he just accepts me. He just loves me. You know? Well, what's he doing? He's modeling the love of God for his people. That's real. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So when uh, we talk about the self-giving love of God, this is what we mean. And we see it in one another's lives. And this is reason for us to give thanks to God. Um, in the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis captures the difference between the devil and the self-giving God. Uh, screw tape, the senior devil, is writing to the junior devil. And he says this. He says, One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of little loathsome replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own. Not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. Now listen to what he says. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Isn't that beautiful? It is so right. Well, God did not create in order to grasp, to, to, to take, to demand. God is not empty. God is not needy. And he doesn't redeem us and save us because he needs us for this reason. In other words, either. He created the world as a gift for his son. And he redeems us in order to share himself with us. This self-giving God. Now, Father, as we alluded to this already, is not a good word to everyone. Not everybody warms to the idea that God is Father. Um, because many have had abusive fathers or indifferent fathers. And so the very word Father uh, may evoke sorrow or fear or repuls- repulsion, revulsion. 
and and I would admit that as a father I've failed my children at points of their real need but God is not modeled on human fatherhood Um, good or bad that's a mistake Michael Reeves in his little book on the Trinity writes this he says things are the other way around it's that all human fathers are supposed to reflect him and see that's why scripture constantly says giving thanks to the father in all things because the father gives he gives and he gives and he gives and he gives and this is who he is in his eternity in his eternal relationship with his son and with the holy spirit all right well then um, the father son and holy spirit bore the cost of our redemption the reason we worship the father with deepest affection is that it's he who bore the cost of salvation along with Christ the Son. Now I'm coming to that theological problem and trying to address that problem, but I want us to see this. It's, it's, it's beautiful and powerful. The Father and the Holy Spirit bore the cost of our redemption along with Jesus Christ. Um, Ephesians 5.2 says that Christ delivered up himself as a fragrant offering to God. Well, just as Christ delivered up himself as a fragrant offering, so God the Father delivered up his own Son. Same language exactly in Romans 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own Son, and that's a particular phrase, his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So this is the... This is the, this is the this is the glorious worship value of those theological words we talked about last week, homoousion and perichoresis. Okay? Listen to uh, Donald McLeod and how he puts this. He says, in light of the homoousion, same being, and the perichoresis, interpenetration, the cross cannot be something from which the Father and the Spirit are absent. Nor is it something exterior to God. It is profoundly interior, so interior, that the blood which is shed there is called the blood of God. In the one, the three come. In the one, the three suffer. Christ's suffering and dying cannot be an experience merely of his human nature. It must be an experience of the divine subject, the Son of God, who is inseparably and always, even when forsaken, one with the Father and the Spirit. That's about the most profound thing I've ever read. I truly mean that. I'm not exaggerating that. That is the one who gave himself for us. The Father upheld him in his ministry. The Father gave him up in loss, in his suffering and death. And the Father now has exalted him to the highest place. And the love of Jesus Christ, the deep compassion of Jesus Christ, is the love of the Father. And it is the love of the Holy Spirit because they are the same being. That's the homoousion. And they they are interrelated with one another in the same being. And so when we know the Son, we know the Father. When we know Jesus Christ, we know the Holy Spirit. And this love of God is absolutely free because God gave his son for us. We tremble and we say, how can I match that? 
And he replies, I require no matching sacrifice. Believe in my son. So glorious. The divine love meets the whole cost. So we worship the Father, we praise the Father, and we worship the Son as our Redeemer, as our Mediator, because He humbled Himself. Remember how Paul writes about this. And the the thing that's so interesting about it is that in the most practical passages where the Apostle is talking about life together in the church, he brings in the most exalted and glorious theology. So he says... Get along with each other. Philippians 2. Have this mind in yourselves that's yours in Christ Jesus. Humble yourselves toward one another. Accept one another. That's the force of what he's saying. Christ Jesus who, even though he was in the form of God, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, and was obedient, of course, obedient to the Father, even to the point of death, death on the cross, he says in order that now God has highly exalted him and bestowed in him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we worship Jesus Christ, we confess that he's Lord, we call him Lord, And we praise Him, and the whole world eventually will do that, whether with gladness or not. And as we do that, we're offering worship to Him that, of course, brings then glory to the Father, too. And we worship the Holy Spirit, likewise, as the one who cleanses our hearts and enables us to believe and to pray and to serve. Okay, let me go on to praying. Uh, to the triune God, to whom should I pray? Uh, Now that we talk about this, sometimes the doctrine of the Trinity gives people terrible difficulty because they don't know who to pray to anymore. And uh, if you... (laughs) uh, That's been true for me, so I, I don't think I'm imposing it on anybody. Sometimes people will say, is it wrong to pray to the Holy Spirit? Well... The answer is no, it isn't. We can and do pray to each of the persons separately and to God as God. Think of the Psalms. There isn't one Psalm that prays to the individual persons of the Trinity. Not one. Now, those are not inferior prayers. Those are the prayers of God's people to the triune God. It's that God, the triuneness hadn't really been made known yet. So... We need have no. We ought to have no hesitation about praying to any of the persons, or the three persons, uh, or to praying to God as God. No hesitation at all, because the three are one, and the one is three, and the one and the three are equally ultimate. So Gregory of Nazianzen said this beautiful thing: "No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illuminated by the splendor of the three. And no sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. And that's absolutely true. Now let's, let's unpack it a little bit more. Fred Sanders, uh, in his book, uh, The Deep Things of God, uh, says this. He says, in one sense, you already pray rightly, no matter how you do or do not consciously consider the persons of the Trinity in your prayers. You are, in fact being brought to the Father through the Son in the Spirit. You are, in fact, being brought to the Father through the Son in the Spirit. And then he quotes Ephesians 2.18. 
For through him, that's Christ, through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. See, as believers, we're united to Jesus Christ. Through his blood, we've been brought near to God, granted access. The church in Ephesus was made up of Gentiles. And you remember the Gentiles had been kept out of the temple, outside the people of God. But now, Paul says, everything is different. We pray to the Father, in the Son, and by the Spirit. And this is what God has already placed in our hearts. And this is just what it means to be a Christian. Uh, Paul writes this in Galatians 4, 6. He says, because you are sons... God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts so that we cry out, Abba, Father. And yet, we should give praise and thanks and adoration to each of the persons. Okay? To each of the persons. So, what I want to do is relieve that, uh, that sense of whatever, that discontent or, or uh, uh, discomfort. At your baptism in the Jordan, O Christ, the worship of the Trinity was revealed. For the Father's voice bore witness to you, calling you the beloved Son. And the Spirit, in the form of a dove, confirmed the truth of these words. O Christ our God, you have revealed yourself and enlightened the world. Glory to you. That's part of the liturgy of the Syrian Orthodox Church. And then in our Confession of Faith, uh, the Westminster Confession, we read this. Religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and to Him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creature, and since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other but Christ alone. So this is just the reality. This is, this is the fact. We pray to the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables us to do that. The Holy Spirit enables us to do it because He's the one who's united us to uh, Jesus Christ. All right, let me go on then to baptism. When we receive baptism, we're baptized into the name of the Trinity. And, um, well, what does that mean? Well, it means we have a sign. Water baptism is a sign to us of God's making His covenant with us embracing us in in his covenant. More specifically, the Father witnesses that he adopts us as his children and as his heirs. And the Son assures us that he washes us in his blood and unites us with himself in his death and resurrection. And the Holy Spirit assures us that he lives within us and sanctifies us to be members of Christ. So baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. See, we're, we're brought into a relationship of communion with the three persons. And so that sign says to us something about the relationship that God has granted us. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit uh, in his covenant. So it's very precious. Very, very precious. Um, this is the thing I miss the most, I'm going to tell you right now, about not being a pastor. I really like working at Reformed Theological Seminary because I get to study, I get to pour myself into students, talk about these important things, you know? It fits my gifts perfectly, but the one thing I don't get to do anymore is baptize anybody. And I used to do that a lot. (laughs) But you think what that means. Think what it means that, that God has placed His name on you, that triune name. And think what it means in temptation. You know, you, you, you're praying for somebody that you know, that you love, and they're facing real difficulty. 
And then you see a baptism take place. And you remember, God has placed His name, that sign, on that person whom I love that I'm praying for. God is committed to them. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are committed. The three persons are committed to Him or her uh, for her good and lifts our hearts and causes us to have faith. Well, then what happens? Well, doxology or praise and theology merge. They merge. Uh, and this is a hymn. I, I, I thought about singing it, but I, I think I'll just read it um, <laughs> in, in kindness. God, all nature sings thy glory and thy works proclaim thy might. Ordered vastness in the heavens, ordered course of day and night. Beauty in the changing seasons, beauty in the storming seas, all the changing moods of nature praise the changeless trinity. Clearer still we see thy hand in man, whom thou hast made for thee, ruler of creation's glory, image of thy majesty. Music, art, the fruitful garden, all the labor of his days are the calling of his maker to the harvest feast of praise. But our sins have spoiled thine image. Nature, conscience, only serve as unceasing grim reminders of the wrath which we deserve. Yet thy grace and saving mercy in thy word of truth revealed claim the praise of all who know thee in the blood of Jesus sealed. God of glory, power, mercy, all creation praises thee. We, thy creatures, would adore thee now and through eternity, saved to magnify thy goodness. Grant us grace to do thy will with our acts as with our voices thy commandments to fulfill. That hymn was written by David Clowney. Some of you may know the name Edmund Clowney. Uh, Dr. Edmund Clowney is a rather famous minister and uh, teacher, taught at Westminster Seminary for many years. His son David uh, wrote this hymn on the, uh, the night of his graduation from, co- from high school uh, in 1960. And uh, obviously a very gifted guy. Some of you may know him too, but um, beautiful hymn to, uh, to God, the triune. Well, um, there aren't enough hymns to the Trinity. Uh, if you look through your hymn book, you'll see probably not too many. And um, we need more. So you all have some gifts, I know that. You have some gifts, literary gifts and uh, spiritual gifts of, of composition. And uh, so we need some hymns. So let's, let's, let's write some hymns uh, in praise to, to the triune God. Okay, thank you all. You're great. Thanks for the opportunity to be with you.